Good morning. It's so glad to be back, and we're so glad to be back in this one of our supporting churches, which provides the means for us to go overseas and serve the Lord. So I was asked to give a missionary message today, and what God laid it upon my heart was the topic of missionary motivations. You might wonder, why are we there and why are we not here when it comes to overseas service? Well, there's a verse in the Bible that's always been my personal goal, and it's been a motto. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 16. And in part it reads, to preach Christ in the regions beyond. And so, people in the regions beyond haven't had the opportunity that we have had in this country. So, long, long time ago, before I was married, when I was preparing to go overseas, some people thought it was silly that I would even attempt to do this, and they gave me their reasons why I shouldn't go overseas as a missionary. And one of their reasons was, there's no money in it, as if that is our goal in life. Someone had the audacity to say, well, you might get eaten by the cannibals and be made into being soup. Well, at that time, I was heading to a cannibalistic country, but then I couldn't get a visa in there, so I got shunted to another country, the Philippines. And then someone said, there's so much to do in this country, which is true. Well, after I heard all those arguments, the devil began to tempt me, saying, why don't you listen to them? After all, some of the people who are telling you these things have gray hair. And you should follow the wisdom they have to give. And so I had to stop and think, because that is true. We should follow what our elders teach us. And it also is true that there are some improper motivations why some people go overseas. One improper motivation is simply going for humanitarian reasons. Humanitarian reasons are to help the poor and provide a skill or service to them. And that is fine, but if it's not tied with the proclamation of the gospel, then it's solely mercy work. Dr. Albert Schweitzer, in the past century, he built hospitals. Great thing to do. President of the United States founded the Peace Corps, which is a movement all over the world and much appreciated. But that's all it is. It's humanitarian. The gospel is not mixed with it. A second improper motivation is love of adventure. They think we can do things overseas that you can't do in this country, and so it attracts some kind of people who want to do the exotic and the things they can't do in this country. This last one hasn't attracted me, but it's a a part of our daily life sometimes. Traffic jams. And then, let me tell you a true story about a testimony I heard. Here was the fiancé. She wanted to become a missionary. Okay, the man was going to be a Bible translator somewhere in the world. I heard this testimony when I was taking linguistic training. And then the girl, his fiancé, got up and she said, I really don't want to be a missionary, but my fiancé wants to be a missionary, so I guess I have to be a missionary. He was sitting on the piano playing for our service when she gave this testimony. And I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder how long they're going to last. 
He's got a motivation to go, but her motivation isn't quite the right motivation. So, does the Bible provide us proper motivations? We just looked at three improper ones, and I believe the answer is yes. Here are six proper motivations. And they're all going to revolve around this man who's thinking whether or not he should go. There's a motivation that comes from the region behind him. There's a motivation that comes from the region beneath him and before him and beyond him and below him. And the last one, beside him. So those are my six points this morning. First of all, the motivation that comes from the region behind us. What is that behind us as we stand in history in 2015? Well, years and years and years ago, when Jesus was on earth, he uttered the Great Commission. This Great Commission has been put down by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and also added to the book of Acts by Luke. And on the day that he went up to glory, standing on the Mount of Olives, Almost as he's ascending up, he gave the Great Commission. What is this Great Commission that he gave approximately 2,000 years ago? Well, some people think if something is in the past, it's old, it's outdated, it's worthless, it's certainly dull, it's old-fashioned, and therefore we shouldn't have anything to do with it. Because we want the new We're in the new generation. We're in 2015. We want something progressive and worthy of our time and, yes, exciting and fashionable. So to look back at something that happened roughly 2,000 years ago, should we even bother looking at this point? Well, I'm going to break down the Great Commission into 11 aspects, and you discover the answer for yourself. Taking the Great Commission apart, Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20, part A says, it talks about the goals of the Great Commission. What are the goals when Jesus went up to glory? He said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Here we have three goals that Jesus gives his disciples. Make disciples is the first goal. Then baptize those disciples that you make. And then teach them everything. Teach them what I have taught you so they know the word of God. So that is our goal. Those three things. The founder of the mission that I'm with, Grattan Ganesh, he had a brother who founded a brewery in Scotland. And he's famous for Guinness whiskey. His brother was an evangelical. He wanted to go to China during the time of Hudson Taylor. And so he said to his friend, Hudson Taylor, Hudson, I want to join you as a missionary in China. I want to make disciples. So he knew the goal. But Hudson Taylor said to him, No, Grattan. You'd be more useful to me by staying here in England and founding a training school for missionaries. Because that's your gift. You have a gift of training and you have a gift of teaching. And so Ganesh said, okay, I'll do that. And he founded what was called the East London Institute. 
It was a Bible school which trained hundreds of missionaries. And eventually, it morphed into our mission, which started in Africa. So he knew what the goals were. I want to make disciples. But secondly, the Great Commission goes on to talk about a partnership. Jesus said, and surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. A partnership. And the partnership is Jesus and us. We are working in partnership with him right to the end of the age. That was what Mark, or Luke, or Matthew told us. Now we go to Mark. <laughs> and Mark tells us about the recipients of the Great Commission. As we go around the world, who do we talk to? It says, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. So the recipients is everyone in the world, whether they're a boy or girl, adult, child, middle-aged, elderly, as long as they are a part of the world. That is who we should preach the gospel to. And Mark also tells us what the quality of this is all about. He says, preach the good news. We are not preaching something that's bad news to people. Like, this is the best news in the world, that they can be saved and receive eternal life. So this should give us great joy because the quality of our message is so good. And Mark also talks about the necessity of going. Jesus goes on to say in verse 16, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. Wow, what a necessity to go. Because if someone is saved, they get eternal life. If they don't, they get a reward of eternal punishment. They will be condemned. So yes, there is a necessity for us to go. And in Mark 16, verse 17 and onwards, it talks about the signs of the Great Commission. Now I have to add that some Bibles make a a footnote and say, in the best, oldest manuscripts, these verses are not included. So some people do not think this is part of the Word of God. And of course, many people do. I'm including it here. And these signs will accompany those who believe, Jesus said. In my name, they will drive out demons. Wow, what a sign. They will speak in new tongues, another sign. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on the sick people, and they will get well. So these are signs to authenticate. Here you have someone who's demon-possessed, and an exorcism, casting out the evil spirits. I have done so. Speaking in new languages, and I've had to learn too other than English, so that we can communicate. And as Pastor said, we translated the Bible into another language. Handling snakes. I once had a snake wrap itself around my wrist when I turned the computer on because the snake was hiding behind my computer. And I shook it off and a snake dropped on my wrist. Now, I didn't pick the snake up just to prove that I had faith in God. That was a pure accident. Drinking poison. I have a friend whose name was Gus Kaiser. He went to Ethiopia as a missionary, and the people would not listen to him. Finally, the chief there said, listen, is your God greater than our spirits? 
And of course, Mr. Kaiser said, yes, he is. The chief went and got some poison, said, drink this, prove it. And Mr. Kaiser remembered what was in Mark 16. This is a sign. Well, what was he going to do? He knew this poison was fatal. He said, yes, I will drink it. And he prayed to God in his heart, God, you said signs will follow. These people will believe, hopefully, if you show yourself strong. He drank it. For three days he writhed on the ground, going in and out of consciousness. When he came to in consciousness, he said, God, if you let me die, these people will believe that their spirits are stronger than you. You've got to make me live. And after three days, he stood up. And of course, the people were watching over these three days. What could they do but believe? And the last one is, put your hands on the sick and pray for them. One of the signs. And God allowed me to do this on one occasion. Going on to the book of Luke now, part of the Great Commission, we have the message. Well, what are we supposed to say? Signs are going to follow us, but what are we supposed to say? This is what is written, Jesus said. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So we have a threefold message. It's very simple. The death of Christ. He died for our sins. Secondly, the resurrection of Christ. He didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead to give us power and life. And we can have forgiveness if we repent. That is our simple threefold message that we proclaim. Now going to the book of John, John gives another aspect of the Great Commission, the model of the Great Commission. Jesus said, Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So here's the model. Just as Jesus came to earth sent by the Father, he says, I'm sending you, just like what happened to me. And in Acts, written by Luke, emphasizes the power of the Great Commission. So we're to go, but by what power? And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the word there is dunamis in Greek, and in English we have words close to that word, from that same Greek word, dynamite and dynamic. This is the power of the Holy Spirit as we proclaim the message. We will be like dynamite, and we will be dynamic. But there's a cost, and you will be my witnesses. Witnesses, the Greek word for witnesses, martus from which we get our English word martyr. You will be witnesses, and some of you will witness through martyrdom. And it's a proven fact that all of Jesus' disciples, except John, were actually martyred. Going on, Jesus told them his plan. You start in Jerusalem, then you go to Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So the plan is you start at home and prove yourself. Then you increase yourself, go from where you are now to your province, to the next province, and then if you prove yourself, you can go on out to the uttermost parts. So it's outward, this direction. You don't start at the outward 
but you start at home and prove yourself. But for many people, it's backwards. Many people think we go this way, and so then we invite the unsaved people into the church so that the pastor can preach to them and the pastor can convert them. Whereas the the plan is we go out from the church, our Jerusalem, and out into the world, and we proclaim. So many churches have it backwards today. So this is the motivation that comes from the region behind us that happened 2,000 years ago. And it's a great motivation. But it's not the only motivation. If it were our only motivation, it wouldn't be good enough. Why is that? Well, you know the story of little Johnny. His angry mother told him to sit down in the pew. Stop standing up. Well, he didn't want to. Finally, she forced him down. And he said through clenched teeth, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Wow, that... So if we go simply because we have to, that's not a good motivation. So therefore, there's another motivation, the motivation that comes from the region beneath us. And that's our heart. The motivation should be love. And it's a double-sided, two-pronged kind of love. It's Christ's love for me. For Christ's love compels me because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. So he loved me first. Well, because he loves me first, what's my response to him? And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So it's a reciprocal kind of love. Christ loved me, and because of his love for me, I want to, out of love, go and serve him and serve others. Now, I use the word, the region beneath us, beneath me, in this body somewhere. Now, why did I do that? Well, King David, in the King James Version, uses the word reigns. Thou hast possessed my reins. That's an old English term for your kidneys. So David thought love was not in his heart, but in his kidneys. Fast forward through time, we come to the time of Paul. And in the King James Version, if any bowels and mercies. Why that word bowels? Well, because during this time when the King James Version was being translated... They thought that love was in the bowels, the lower gut. Well, and then Jesus walked the earth. Fast forward some more time. He talked about love the Lord your God with all your heart. So now people thought that love was in their hearts, just like we do in our society. Our tribal people that we work with, if you translate what this tribal man is saying, utopmi, mind the physical organ in our head, our brains. That's where they think love is. So which is it? Where is love? Somewhere in here. Well, to me, it doesn't really matter. Love is here somewhere. And that should be a motivation. Because Christ has loved us, we in turn want to love him and love others. 
He constrains us to go. So this is a higher motivation than the first one. The first one could be a have to. This one is because I want to. But there's a third motivation, and that's from the region before me. Now, what are these people thinking and what are they saying? Some of them are saying, according to the prophet Isaiah, we look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Others are saying, like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. Another person says, at midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We look for light. Now, here's a husband and wife discussing this, this passage, Isaiah 59. And she says, hey, hon, the prophet Isaiah says that the unsaved are crying. We look for light. But honestly, I don't see it. Nobody's saying that, but I know. And he says, yeah, it seems that whenever I try to share Christ with anyone, that he or she does not want to listen. So how do we interpret this passage of Isaiah's? He says, they're saying, we wait for light, but behold, darkness. We stumble in the midday as if it were dark. And he says, well, it could be that Isaiah is just describing the spiritual need of people, crying out to those of us who have the answer. Let's go to John 4. Jesus is sitting down at noontime, and he says, he thinks, aha, here's a woman who is waiting for light. I'll talk to her. He says, hello, ma'am. Would you please give me a drink? I'm thirsty. And the Samaritan woman says, How can you ask me for a drink when you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman? Jesus says, I have living water, which actually is eternal life. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Fast forward. Later on, the disciples come back and Jesus is dialoguing about what has happened. And he says to his disciples, so you see, guys, if you can't see the world beckoning to you for spiritual help, then just lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white, all ready to harvest. And by this time, the lady had gone back into Sychar and brought her friends, and they're streaming towards Jesus. The fields are white, but the disciples had just been there. They hadn't seen a thing. And then Jesus says, but sadly, even though the harvest truly is plenteous, the laborers are few. Here's an elder, here's grandpa. And grandpa says, many people in my generation looked at the foreign mission fields of the world and saw by faith people saying, we wait for light, but weren't willing to look across the street at someone who was saying, the same thing. Here's his granddaughter. She says, and many people in my generation have the opposite problem. They see the person across the street saying, we wait for light, but they fail to see the people in foreign lands saying the same thing. And grandpa says, it's not an either-or situation. And she says, it's a both-and. And she's right. 
and he's right. I once got a message from this town. The message was, our whole town of Dukalan here in the Philippines is kindly requesting you, Trevor, to send us a Bible teacher. Can you or anyone in your organization go to meet our need? We've got 1,000 people here. And I had to reply, sorry, we don't have any workers available. What was this village, town of 1,000 people saying? We wait for light. And I don't know if they're still waiting for light because we haven't been able to send anyone there. Most of us don't look through spiritual eyeglasses to see by faith because it takes faith. People who are actually looking for light. Instead, all we see are people who don't want to know about having eternal peace with God. But God can see the heart. Just like the disciples didn't see the people of Sychar as saying, we wait for light. But Jesus did. So the motivation from the region before us, we see people out there. And what are they saying? By faith we can see into their hearts. And some of them are saying, we wait for light. Are we doing something about it? Are we sharing Christ with them? Because how can they hear and understand unless they have someone who shares? Well, there's a fourth motivation, and that's from the region beyond us. Crowns, prizes. Philippians 3.14 says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. And some people are motivated by prizes. Now, wouldn't it be awful if we got to the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema, in heaven, by the skin of our teeth? We just made it in. Do we have any crowns to give and lay at Jesus' feet after the rewards are given out? Now, it's not wrong to be prize-oriented. Little kids, especially at Sunday school picnics, love it. Young people love it. They want to win the prize. And adults like it, too. And the people in the Olympics certainly do. They want to get the gold. If not the gold and the silver and then the bronze. People are motivated by prizes. The Bible gives us different kinds of crowns that hopefully should motivate us. The crown of gold which is given to believers. So that means everyone who makes it to heaven will get at least one crown. The crown of gold. There's also other crowns, the crown of glory given to Christians who do their work well, 1 Peter 5.4. The crown of incorruptibility, a crown that won't mold and fall apart, given to all who run the race of the Christian life well. The crown of rejoicing, given to those who win others to Jesus Christ. The crown of life given to those who are martyrs for the sake of the kingdom of God. The crown of righteousness, given to those who eagerly anticipate the second coming of Christ. This man thinks to himself, I'm so glad that I've got some crowns. Now why is he thinking that? Because he says to Jesus, Here, Jesus, I cast down the crowns you gave me at your feet. For you are worthy of my worship and adoration. Please accept them. So this is the motivation that comes to me from the region beyond me. 
I want not just one, but I want more than one. This might not be the highest motivation why we share Christ with others to get something, but it is a motivation nevertheless. So are we motivated by this, by the crowns that are offered us? Two more motivations and I'm done. The motivation that comes from the region below us. This is a difficult motivation to talk about because we're pointing downwards. 2 Corinthians 5.11 in the New International Version says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men because of the fear of the Lord. I like the King James better because it says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. There is a terror. There is a terror. And it should motivate us. This man knows about the terror because he says, this verse has been a huge impetus for me to be a soul winner. I mean, just knowing what the terror of the Lord is, that some people are going to face hell. I want to try to persuade men not to go there. Now, I use the term the region below us. Am I claiming that I actually know where hell is? And the answer is no. But the Bible gives us some clues that it is actually below us. One clue is that the temperature down under, they say, is 6,000 degrees Celsius at the Earth's core. That jives with what the Bible says about it being a hot place. And then Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in the Old Testament, and all their families were swallowed up by the Earth. And they went down into the bowels of the earth. So that gives us a clue where it is. But regardless, regardless of where it is, what is our motivation? Well, the motivation comes from the people who are already there. And if they could talk to us, and they're talking to us through a man that the Bible talks about, the rich man, people in hell are actually saying, don't come to this place of torment. He said, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, and they need to be warned not to come here. So obviously they don't like it in this place, and he doesn't even want his brothers to come there. Now here is a skeptic, a person who doesn't believe. He says, I don't believe in this silly hell stuff. But supposing there actually is a place called hell. Well, then I want to go there, because that's where all the rest of my friends will be, too. We can have a party together down there, eh? Must be a Canadian, because he said, eh? But what does the rich man say to us? What does the rich man say to this man? It's no party down here. I don't want any of my relatives to join me down here. Don't come. So the skeptic is all wrong. Now, is hell a fun place or a horrible place? Well, the Bible uses some pretty grim language. Fire, brimstone, fire is not quenched, one drop of water to quench my burning tongue. That doesn't sound much like fun. Here are two reasons why hell won't be fun. A spiritual reason. There will be the horror of enduring God's holiness in the presence of one's sinful rottenness. I don't know if you have cockroaches around here. We sure do where we live. 
But you turn the light on and the cockroaches flee. They hate the light and they love the darkness. And if the holiness of God is in hell, like it sounds like from what David wrote here in Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. It's like the holiness of God will also be in hell. And those people who are like cockroaches will want to flee away, find darkness where they feel comfortable. But the holiness of God will be shining on them, tormenting them. Doesn't sound like a fun place. And then mentally, mental anguish. One's conscience, dealing with one's conscience, saying, oh, if I only had. Oh, if I only had accepted Christ into my life that one time I had the chance. Oh, if I only had. Oh, if I only had opened the door to, of, my, of my house to the guy who was carrying a Bible and wanted to share with me. But I slammed it in his face. Here's a true story of a guy in a mental asylum. And he said over and over again, oh, if I only had, oh, if I only had, wringing his hands. And he said, had what? Oh, if I only had switched the tracks. That was his job. He fell asleep on the job and forgot to pull the switch, and the train wrecked. It drove him crazy, literally. And that's what he was saying in the insane asylum. Oh, if I only had. For some who never, ever had the chance to hear about Christ in their, in their entire lifetime, they might be saying something a little different. Not only, oh, if I only had, but oh, if you only had. Oh, if you only had come to share Christ with me. True story from England in the last two centuries back. Armley Jail. In England. Charlie Peace was a Victorian criminal from Sheffield, England, so notorious for burglary and murder that he merited mention in one of Sherlock Holmes' short stories. On February 25, 1879, he followed in procession behind the prison chaplain on the way to the gallows. The chaplain routinely and sleepily read some verses from the Bible as they marched. Charlie tapped the chaplain on the shoulder and he said, what are you reading? And the chaplain sleepily said, from the consolations of religion. Charlie said, how can you read that with a dry eye and without even a tremor in your voice? It seems like you couldn't care less that I'm about to go to hell. The response a grunt. And then Charlie said, the punchline, Sir, if I believe what you and the Church of God say you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it if needs be on hands and knees and think it worthwhile if I could but save one soul from an eternal hell like that. And he went to the gallows shortly after. So if we were able to have a one-hour tour of hell, 
and listen to the people down there. They would say, if you Christians up there on earth could have a one-hour tour of hell and see how we're tormented down here, I think you'd all be much more motivated to share Christ with others. So that is a motivation that comes to me. No doubt about it. The motivation that comes from the region below me. But there's one last motivation. And that answers the question, why am I out there and not here? And why are you here and not out there? This motivation, the motivation that comes from the the region beside me, Isaiah says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And so the motivation is personal guidance by the Holy Spirit. He guides us where he wants us to be. It's like you are walking down the road and there's a fork in the road and you don't know whether it's the left or the right way you should go. And this poor girl says, God, which way do I go now? And then she hears a voice behind her saying, this is the way, my child, right, not left, walk in it. So it's personal guidance. The Great Commission tells us to go, but it doesn't say exactly what place to go. And so that's why God has sent my wife and me to the Philippines. We've answered the call to go out there. But not everyone should be there. God wants people here. And the reason why you're here is because of personal guidance. God has guided you here. God has guided us to go across the seas. So, now to wrap up. Very famous story. January 1956. Five New Tribes Mission missionaries were killed trying to reach the Aka Indians. Wadani is their true name today for Christ. And there's a blurred picture of those five missionaries. I want it, and here are some famous pictures coming from that story. The plain... Some of the Akas, the spear, and some of the ones who actually killed them. I want to zero in on one guy, the guy in the middle, Jim Elliott. Let's ask him the question, Jim, what motivated you and your four colleagues to try to reach the Aki Indians for Christ? Like, I mean, why go there? He says, we actually don't need a call. All we need is a kick in the pants. The call's already been given. And those are the six motivations I've just given. The call that comes from the region behind us. Go into all the world. The call that comes from the region before us. We wait for light. But behold, darkness. The call that comes from the region beneath me. Love, the love of Christ constrains me to go. The region that comes from the region beyond me, prizes, crowns, and I want them. The motivation that comes from the region below us, the cry of the doomed and the damned saying, please don't come here and join us. And then lastly, the the motivation that comes from the region beside us. This is the way, and it's individual for all of us. Walk in it. Let's pray. Lord, your word has been very clear to us today, and it motivates us to do better for your kingdom. 
Help each one of us to be properly motivated to do your work in your kingdom, for we believe the time is short. Bless this word to each of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.